Hello, I am C-3PO, and I believe the storyteller is ready. So, let us begin. There's something not right here. I feel cold. Death. That place is strong with the dark side of the Force. A domain of evil it is. And you must go. This week, the story is about dysfunctional romances and marshy hideaway planets. I found these next three chapters of Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire to have probably the most fan service of any previous chunk. We got Han and Leia bickering a bit. Lightsabers are getting traded around. Yoda stuff, Lando stuff, overt images to both Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Uh, Ross, what do you think about a Star Wars book playing the hits versus expanding to new worlds and new characters and new themes? It's really interesting because I even made a comment about how I thought it was kind of lame, the luke reflection uh on the sail barge moment that we had uh from the previous section of chapters whereas luke remembers that time he fought boba fett however maybe that was used to remind just the reader of the event for the later referencing Definitely. of kind of when he when he goes back and has a different experience and remembers different things and uh an alternative scenario plays out uh that luke is going to be force tempted by and intrigued by. So I'm okay with it in that it serves the purpose appropriately. I was thrilled to have, go back to the dark side cave. I don't feel like that's um, in any way, shape and form something that is like fan service for lack of a better term. No. I feel it's appropriate. It's about the development of a care of, of Luke. Uh, it shows kind of a nice connection with with Yoda and the kind of the distraught nature that he has about just see, like seeing it all in shambles. And then the one thing that's left is the evil still stands and, um, and the, and the memories that he had from his encounter with Vader and um, Lando is a little bit like, Oh, of course it's Lando uh, showing up, but I'm okay with it uh, because he's a, he's a main hero and he's, like Leia came to the same assumption that we all did. Oh, of course we're going to Lando to to solve this problem. So yeah, I, I was kind of okay across the board with every little piece that would be called an eye-rolling fan service in on Reddit in 2023. Right. Um, I think it's all gets a thumbs up. Yeah, and I want to be clear, like while I call it fan service and I, I realize that's kind of a pejorative now. I'm not groaning at most of it. Like, no. I think that we've talked about how this is a really good entry point into reading Star Wars books because it feels so familiar and at home. And like, it, people are so wishy-washy because like one of the main criticisms of the sequels is that you don't get enough of the heroes that you've been waiting to learn more about. And this sort of feels like a new exciting adventure that develops those previous characters. And so this is fulfilling something in me in a, in a very exciting way. Having said that, I kind of found this chunk to be at times a little sleepy. Yeah. Overall, this was not necessarily the best array of three chapters to, to focus on uh, because it really only feels like one thing kind of happened. It's like Luke's interactions on Dagobah uh, and his realization that not all may have been as it seemed in Jabba's palace. Those are kind of the, like that sequence is really all that I can take away. The the Han and Leia stuff is very repetitive. Just kind of moving the plot along. It, yeah. it, it's it's them in the in the Falcon during Empire minus all of the crazy antics of running away from the Empire. Um, so it's yeah. just it's kind of being that casual Han and Leia, but nothing's really going on. I would say also aside from like a few sly moments when like Han gets to hold the lightsaber for a sec and he's like you like that and he winks at her it's sort of void of the heat of Empire which is natural because now mm -hmm. they're a parents to be and they've already like crossed that threshold but like they're not at each other's throats in a way kind of hate loving each other they're sort of just loving each other while also being the characters you're familiar with and so it's both natural character progression and like a, a little sleepy and almost a little sad like the reality of the domesticity of long-term relationships in star wars yeah i mean i guess it's sad for for them because they're they're not really able to to sit still 
Mm. Uh, when they want to sit still and enjoy it, they're not able to. And when they are able to, they're not able to mentally or they're not able to remove themselves from the situation or get out of their own way. So, yeah, I, I guess it is kind of an, an interesting look at it when you kind of reflect upon it that way. It's it is boring though. Like you said, sleepy. It just feels like they feel, they feel tired. They do. Um, yes. And so, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting section, especially with someone like wedge who doesn't jump off the page as being super exciting either. It's also funny. I, I do enjoy Han kind of ribbing the situation where it's like wedge was maybe the least qualified person to be our bodyguard. What the hell was that about? That was just <laughs> like, you, not the right person at all. Very good pilot, not a bodyguard. <laughs> I need Chewbacca. Yeah, and and Wedge, when he popped up again, I was like, oh, right, I forgot that he had like this little cameo earlier in the book, and that reminded me that maybe they brought in too many characters into this story to say nothing of Mara Jade, who we do get another cameo. She gets about a third of one of the three chapters that we're covering for this week's podcast. So very minimal Mara Jade and Card when they sort of seem like one of the more interesting plot points, like her hatred for Luke Skywalker just peaks up over the horizon here and there in this book. But like, we got so much story to cover. I fully expect that the Mara Jade focus comes in one of the other books. Maybe I, I know she's going to be in this one, but there's a lot of story to tell. So I can't, I don't think that it's going to be, all unraveled in this or even very much maybe most of the mara jade plot line occurs in the next book mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of a nice exciting element that i don't really know the order in which any of the events occur or the inciting incidents that kind of bring about um connecting a lot of these people and so it was kind of cool to have like i know the extent of the next the next little bit of how it plays out for luke but i didn't know how luke kind of made the realization of okay, maybe this alternative presence where Mara Jade had stolen the lightsaber from me. And then she's off kind of with Talon card. So she seems out of the fray, but he's kind of connected to Thrawn. So you know they're going to loop back in in some way, shape, or form. But that still doesn't directly get her a connection to Luke Skywalker. That's going to be going Luke through Yoras Sabayoth. And so it's like it seems like there's still a lot of jumps to get to before Mara is even going to meet Luke. And so that storyline is is not going to develop quickly. I, I can't, I don't expect it. Maybe, or maybe this story is going to start crossing people's plot lines in the second and third act of it, and that characters are going to be crossing each other's paths and working together, lest we forget that the best Star Wars titles are ambiguous and can be interpreted in many ways. Who really is the Phantom Menace? Who really is the Last Jedi? And who really is the heir to the Empire? One would think that it's, you know, the big blue face on the cover of the book, Admiral Thrawn, but maybe the book wants you to consider that it could be Kabaeth, or it could be Mara Jade, or it could be Luke Skywalker, it could be Leia, it could be one of their children. And so it could it, be the New Republic itself. Absolutely, because they're still working things out. And so they do want to keep you guessing and um, we we open chapter nine on Thrawn. We've really said almost nothing about Thrawn, yeah. but the, he and Pelion with Kabaeth kind of there as well, not doing much. I'm finding him very flaccid so far. Like he's supposed to be fearsome and he really isn't able to do anything in this book. Because he's just cranky he's and mad. Cranky and, and like... cocky. Um, Thrawn is leading like classic empire shit, baby. We're uh, gearing up the guns and we're gonna blow up a planet because that's what we do best. It's just Thrawn focused in, does kind of his little bits of Holmes and Watson, but at the same time, a little bit of a different approach showing that uh, he is eager to pat Pelion on the back mm -hmm. uh, and that this is something that they're working on together. Uh, and that was in this chapter, the, the Vader comments, correct? Uh, I think so. But, I'm kind of flipping all over the served, place. He served too long on Vader's ship. Yes, yes. Uh, and that uh, I welcome good ideas, even if they don't come from me. My ego um, is no, not that, part I of No, I think that equation. was last week. I think we talked that about part, that last week. Okay. Yeah, yeah and that, that comes down to I. a lot of the, this stuff is kind of blending together. And this yep. is one of the criticisms of Timothy Zahn, uh, his writing style in general, is that there's a lot of space battles, and space battles don't translate to the page. Mm. They just don't. Um, cause it's all visual. And so how are we really supposed to follow along the tactics? It's hard. Uh, and so I'm just more so focused on the relationships between 
um, our kind of our, our trio of, of imperial baddies at the moment. Uh, and they're not really on the same page. Um, Thrawn is telling Sabaoth to be patient about Luke, and Sabaoth doesn't want to be. And then, then we get into the teasing plan. What is the name of the world that they're they're attacking? I don't remember. No, and well, and maybe I'm confusing it with day. I'm confusing it with Bafash. How do you pronounce that? That that's how I would have pronounced it. I believe, yeah. Is that how your audiobook reader is pronouncing it? Because it's it's being brought up brought up a lot, but there's this like funny Han moment later in the chapter where they're talking about the attack that happened. And Han says, The Imperials, Han said sourly, they just pulled a three prong hit and fade on a on three systems in the Sluis sector. Some place called Bafash and two unpronounceable ones. And this feels like a joke about all Star Wars planets being quasi unpronounceable because like to this point, I'm like, how do you pronounce Bafash? But then he yeah. makes a joke about that one being more pronounceable than the two he won't even venture. And I thought that was kind of a, a sort of self-aware in the writing. Yeah. No, and I also like the use of the sluice sector. I think it's the only time it's maybe, I don't think it's ever mentioned uh, on screen in Star Wars. And so that's kind of cool. That's where Dagobah is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it was good to kind of see uh, the plan form with Sabayoth, um wanting to draw Luke out in particular um, for showing that there's another Jedi out there uh, in the world. And then we see that come to fruition when Wedge knows about it and then right. tells Leia. And that's a little too perfect with the timing, the way that, that that news spread across the galaxy awfully fast, yet we're led to believe, in canon at least, that like not everybody knew about like about Darth Vader or uh, had met Jedi. And so it's interesting to see which little pieces of info can travel quickly in the galaxy far, far away and which things uh, never make their way to the planet next door. Well, and there's another thing that comes up at the end of this chapter that my instinct was, why do you know about this? But I want to wait before we get to that because there is some interesting uh, disposition between Pelion and Cabeoth and Thrawn, who's like eternally the guy in charge, and Pelion's just trying to like keep his back straight. Kabaeth is moaning under the side. And, and so Pelion, his hands gripped the arms of his chair, and his lips were pressed so tightly together that the veins and cords in his neck stood out, which I thought was very vivid and kind of gross. Are you all right, Master Kabaeth? He said. Save your concern, Captain, Thrawn told him coldly. He's doing what he enjoys most, controlling people. And so I, I, I thought... I saw the makings of a potential faction between Pelion and Thrawn. That Pelion's kind of getting bossed around from two sides here. He's really neutered by this dynamic, and he's not fully confident in Thrawn's methods. And I wonder if you predict a situation in which they're opposites. Um, I don't know. I I think he is a little bit of a. I think he's a. Lo- he's such a loyalist to the Empire. And this is a character I, I know more about in description than I know about really his his motivations. Uh, I know where he goes, so I don't really know if I can comment on that necessarily. Like, I know his overall story, but at this point, I do see them being pretty aligned. He's just a little unsure of, of everything, and I guess that makes sense for your stuffy Imperial. I mean, at this time, we only had wildly incompetent Imperials, and... Tarkin, Veers, and Jurjarod. And so even Veers and Jurjarod aren't exactly screaming incompetence. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of puts Pelion maybe on their scale, sort of, as like, oh, well, this guy's a little bit sniveling and dumb, but he's at least somewhat maybe redeemable, or at least we can see ourselves in his eyes. Um, I, it's kind of an odd one. Um, I'm not really sure how to really place how Pelion will be presented in the Mandoverse is he going to be just like an Imperial yeah. uh, from uh, the original trilogy or is he going to be a little bit more layered uh, I have no idea I'm not saying he's going to have like a hero turn or something but no, I, th- I think sure. about someone like Hux who ultimately got tired of being a whipping boy and like mm. tried to take matters into his own hands and I could see that kind of here and another line that that jumped out at me along that theme Petleon couldn't help but wonder uneasily if the Grand Admiral recognized the extent of the power he'd awakened from its sleep on Wayland. And so this is Thrawn, no, this is Pelion starting to wonder if Thrawn has been reckless in involving a Master Jedi. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's, I think that's writing on the wall no matter what. Right. That this is not the best pairing. Thrawn is telling us that 
Kabeya has nothing, or Sabayat, nothing he likes more than controlling people. And he keeps correcting me, like, oh, this isn't real control because it's basically because it's, it's not a Jedi, or this isn't real power. Whereas, alternatively, that's what Thrawn wants to do. Thrawn's yeah. getting his jollies out of controlling Pelion, and more importantly, someone who's more powerful than him in Sabayat, and he's still able to be the one in charge. Uh, and so, Maybe that kind of he he's not looking in the mirror, and that's maybe his greatest fallacy at this particular time, um, because Sabayoth is just batshit insane, mm -hmm. and Thrawn's entire um, like mo is about predicting. And how can you predict utter insanity? Thrawn's pretty good at predicting chaos, but that's kind of the point of chaos is it's unpredictable, and so that's he right. might have he, he might have set his own trap. The next part of chapter nine jumps to Mara and Card, which is kind of a relief. Good. We're we're rejoining with these people. And I'm sad to say I kind of didn't follow exactly what they were doing in this chapter. I know they were trying to make a delivery either to the Empire writ large or specifically to the Chimera. Uh, but I wasn't sure what the delivery was, and I wasn't sure why they were unable to complete that mission other than that there was an attack happening. To be completely honest, after the day I've had, uh, I don't even remember <laughs> okay. anything that you're it, talking it, about. It was quick, and that was really their little cameo in the chapter before we jump back to yeah. to Leia anyway, so that's fine. But like that was kind of just the book saying, hey, don't forget that we introduced Card and Mara. They are going to come back a little bit later. And by the way, they're kind of hovering. So they're, that's why I said earlier, I think they're going to cross paths. Yeah, oh, I think they're definitely going to cross paths. I just think we're going to see Mara Jade remain a baddie through this whole book. It's kind of just another like chit chat emotional uh, scene between Han and Leia um, and Wedge. This is where he appears again. They're trying to figure out exactly what just happened with Bafash and and why. Um, and uh, chit chat. They, there's like a little bit more talk about Leia and her capabilities. Like, um, yes, she was given martial arts training as a child on Alderaan but that's not the same as Jedi training and we talked a little bit last week about like Han's level of faith in her uh, or her capabilities and also wanting to protect her and her unborn children yeah well also the one thing we didn't mention was the lightsaber that she got a lightsaber yeah that's in here I know yeah and uh, especially seeing as Luke had just offered in like the previous chapter to be like hey do you want I can make you a lightsaber whenever you need it and then she just has one um, so there was this have, you looked, have you looked up what the lightsaber looks like? Oh no. It's it's hideous. Oh, it's not the <laughs> same as what appears in Rise of Skywalker? No, the Rise of Skywalker gave Leia a beautiful and much so. more appropriate hilt. Yeah. Um it's clunky and 90s. Oh. And, <laughs> <in> 90s. <Legends. laughs> it looks like the Max from Saved by the Bell. I uh, it I look it up for yourself. It's 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 rough. Like one of those like pink windbreakers from the 90s. And... It looks like it has it should have chrome spinners on it almost. <laughs> Great. I will definitely look that up. Thank you for the tease. There's an interesting bit of lore here mentioned about the Pafashi. Um, Leia answered quietly, the Pafashi don't like the Jedi. Han twisted his lip. The story is that some of their Jedi went bad during the Clone Wars and we really mangled things up before they were stopped. And... Uh, so I, I just kind of thought that was interesting. It's always interesting when they bring things back to the Clone Wars and how it uh, has a ripple effect in how it impacted the entire galaxy. Yeah, I mean, at this point, the Clone Wars seems pretty clear to me that it's, or Zahn's understanding of it is that the Jedi started to clone themselves. It got out of control. Some of the crazy Jedi went crazy. Some of the normal Jedi went bad. and Or some of the crazy Jedi went bad. Uh, then the normal Jedi went bad. And then they just destroyed each other until there was none left and the empire picked up the pieces and Vader right. swept them all under the, like just got rid of them all. Rest, so. so this leads me to the thing that obviously plays a big role in the chunk we're here to discuss tonight. But my immediate instinct was I didn't think this was common knowledge. And so we're talking about that and the Bifashi. Uh Leia says she's right. She's talking about Mon Mothma. We were still getting echoes of the whole fiasco in the Imperial Senate when I was serving there. It wasn't just Bifashi either. Some of those dark Jedi escaped and made trouble all through the Sluis sector. One of them even got as far as Dagobah before he was caught. Luke felt a jolt run through him. Dagobah? When was that? 
And so immediately I'm like, okay, I can deal with Leia knowing what Dagobah is, but like it's on the record within the New Republic that Dagobah is a place where people go. I just thought that was kind of fucked up because the whole thing about it is that it's untraceable, undetectable. No one's going to find me there, but like it's a regular Jedi hiding place now. Yeah, I mean, they do kind of go into talking about else. I think, I don't think it's in this section, but maybe one of the earlier sections, or maybe it was this section, where Luke mentions that he believed Yoda's kind of energy was hidden mm-hmm. amongst Dagobah. And so that's the kind of their argument, I guess, in this, in, in the Legends world, whereas canon doubles down on this is so remote and backwater. Plus, it's also rich of life and a, and a force nexus. And so this was the prime place for Yoda to go. Whereas this makes it, makes Yoda pretty lucky as well. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and also amazing that like it landed in the exact same spot. So it's pretty easy to navigate to Yoda's place as well. And this incites Luke gearing up the X-Wing, uh, getting R2 ready for a flight. He's going to, in fact go to Dagobah to see if he can find any clues about exactly what's going on in the galaxy right now. But not without a very funny joke wherein Han references Luke being a protective older brother. And then he says, actually, we've never figured out who's older. And I just thought that was really funny. (laughs) It's meaningless. We actually know that Luke is a minute older than Leia because we've seen it. So he is, I guess, her big brother. (laughs) But it's just a pointless, silly twin joke. And it made me giggle. Yeah, no, it's nice to every little bit of kind of brotherly and and sibling nature that they introduce into it uh, is really good. I'm curious to know if they follow up on Leia remembering her mother at all anymore Mm. or things like that that maybe can contradict about um, just the general, yeah, the general origins of their family um, and how that develops over time. I, I know they go into it a lot more when Jason Solo's born because of how similar he is to Anakin. Yes, uh, but wouldn't it be so disruptive if they put in a vision of Leia's mother and it just wasn't the Padme that we recognize at all? That would be very, very weird. Yeah. Uh, There there is some art of um, the the mother of the Skywalkers and Anakin uh, long, like long ago and like before it was ever realized. And it's just interesting to kind of see people's interpretations. It was basically just one looked like Luke and one looked like right. Leia. And that's kind of what they went for <laughs> with the casting. Right. And so, uh, there's kind of a neat thing where Luke is readying the X-Wing and they reference that he's never had the, every X-Wing within the, the organization gets its memory wiped like every month. And he doesn't have that done to his X-Wing because it's so, uh, in tune with R2, like R2 and the X-Wing have such a close relationship. And I thought that was really interesting because only just now in the last few years has Star Wars readopted this idea that droids and ships can have relationships with each other. And I thought that was cool that this existed in 1991. I noticed that too. I thought that was really, really awesome. And I thought on top of that, it also merges in the other concept of R2 not being the one who gets his memory erased. So yeah. 3PO gets his memory erased all the time, and so do plenty of droids. R2 has had, has, he has some serious like storage power because he's got some deep reserves in his memory banks, or he purges the right stuff because uh, he's never erased. And I think that was kind of a cool element that, that stayed the same here. So we go into chapter 10, and we've actually already hit on some of this, the meeting with Wedge, the fact that Wedge knows about the legends of a dark Jedi and... And so they're kind of able to piece some things through there. Uh, there is another attack, and at last there's some action, because at this point I was starting to feel the you know the space attack notwithstanding, and you mentioned that doesn't work as well on the page. It started to feel like a little bit courtroomy, this book. Um, and so it was nice to see that there was like a little bit more uh, evading capture. As I said, Han kind of gets to use the lightsaber for a second. Uh, and they're separated from Chewie, and um, Leia says that she can't, uh, sense Chewie's presence and I only yeah. I made a weird note that I wasn't sure she should even be able to sense Chewie's presence uh, I think that that's okay I don't see any reason why that doesn't work I mean it's I don't know if there's been an instance before where someone who has the force is able to identify someone who doesn't I'm not mm-hmm. quite sure if at this point I don't know if that happens in the original trilogy. I'm trying to think of. I'm pretty sure it's only Vader, Luke, and Leia, and Obi-Wan who really have those sensing abilities. And, and Yo- like Yoda, really, it just seems to be 
force user to force user. So this might be the first instance of that, but it doesn't feel inconsistent with No, it with doesn't canon. it doesn't feel like it's crossing any kind of like uncrossable line. It doesn't feel like a great transgression. It just kind of stood out to me as this funny thing where we're constantly saying that Leia and her force powers are not perfectly honed. Granted, sensing presence and communicating hmm. with her soul is kind of her bread and butter, but I don't know. I, I think back to Ray not knowing that Chewie wasn't on that ship when the ship blew up in Rise of Skywalker. And I'm like, I don't know if people can just like know where they can't find my friends just because they have the force. You know what I mean? But maybe they yeah, can. That's a, that is a really good point. Uh, I think I, I never had any issue with Ray thinking she blew up Chewie in, in that regard. I mean, I, I don't like the general approach of a bait and switch sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, I guess it kind of it, it made sense because it's it, when it comes to the force, it's you're sensing like unique presences and your life force would have a unique signature. And so it should stand out. And when when that life presence dies, you could you should be able to kind of feel it. And like that's consistent the same way when Ray dies, Finn feels it. But once again, that's force user to force user. So uh, it was good contextually, though. I thought it was a really cool way to. I just have the entire scene go that the Falcon is showing up to save the day and Han's understanding of the Falcon and Leia's use of the force. They're able to merge their, their best knowledge bases and realize it's a trap. It's a trap. That's what's so cool. Yeah. So that we weren't exactly clear about that, but the reason Leia can't sense Chewie aboard the Falcon is it is a decoy Falcon. They have hauled up a different, uh, YT 1300 freighter, um, which is just like, really fascinating like you don't other than like solo a star wars story you don't get a lot of other corellian freighters in star wars the fact that they've got like an identical falcon decoy is both like wrong and exciting because what a fun twist yes did they confirm that that's the case i don't think that they did did they oh i thought so um i, I know that's what han says but what i thought originally and what i think could still be the case is that we in the previous chapter or two chapters ago we talked about how Yora sabayoth is able to smash ships together and like fuck everything up yeah. and so i originally thought when he could when she couldn't sense chewie's presence i thought she couldn't sense presence meaning sabayoth was lifting the falcon and that chewie was captured elsewhere and that there's no one in it yeah that's very possible that's kind of what i thought that it is the falcon there's just no pilot at all um but it seems like it like I mean it is indeed a, a decoy. They do keep using the word the they do keep using the word decoy is the only reason I glued to that. But it doesn't mean your theory doesn't hold true. And I'm not sure they fully resolved it. Um I just feel like with the way that they introduced the Nogri and then started talking about them as this unknown species and then brought it back again uh to being the Nogri, they seem to be leaning towards telling certain parts of the story from the perspective of the knowledge base of the characters. Right. So if something they don't know, then the audience isn't told about it. For a horrifying second, she thought the aliens had set the ship to self-destruct, but the sound faded away. The ramp beside her was still intact. What was that? That, sweetheart, Hans said, pulling himself up to his feet, was the sound of an escape pod being jettisoned. This is what you said about how Han also has an intimate knowledge of exactly what's going on here, and they're together able to pool their assets, I suppose. Yeah, uh, and also another thing that was awesome in, in The Last Jedi was getting to see uh, a cruise taken in that coffin-like escape pod. So that kind of settles down. <laughs> I just underlined this. This is not worth discussing, but I underlined there was a long moment of silence and Han could imagine Akbar's huge eyes swiveling in their sockets. And I just wrote, <laughs> I just wrote gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they don't, uh, they don't pull any punches making uh, Akbar and Mon Mothma not look great. And Thalia, and, too, who apparently is kind yeah. of angling for one of the bigger jobs. Oh, he, that he's clearly the um, the bad actor of the bunch, the one that's intentionally mm. supposed to be um, the shit disturber, the, the opportunist. And so what they decide is that they need, I am reluctant to use the word vacation, but they need to get away from all this. They need to pick a place where Leia can still do some of her desk job work. She can still be tuned into the Republic and her like day-to-day -day duties. Um, 
but she's not going to be like a target here in Coruscant all the time. And so um, I thought it was kind of interesting that I'm talking about ships before Han mentions they have a diplomacy radio on the Falcon that like wherever they go, wherever they go, she can still like stay in tuned with what the galactic hubbub is. I've never heard of like comlinks being discussed that way in Star Wars. I thought it was kind of neat. Yeah. Um, and what they decide the best thing to do is to enlist an old buddy who they can trust. And it's so interesting and deliberate that they use the word trust as they're teasing Lando Calrissian. Yes. Uh, not exactly somebody who's earned a lot of trust, um, but I think he's been working a little while to to earn it back. Uh, it'll be it'll be it'll be cool to see him in his most swagger uh, imaginable because this is post blowing up Death Star too. Yeah, uh, he's probably more he's probably richer than he's ever been. Uh, it'll be curious to see if Lando has changed at all, or if he's still the exact Lando that we know, or if he's even more flamboyant. Han says, we need to find someone we can trust who has his own list of illegals. He's talking about like people who are off the books who can like kind of work under the table for them. A suspicious glint came into her eye. This is Leia. You don't mean Lando. Who else? Han said innocently. Upstanding citizen, former war hero, honest businessman. Of course, he'll never have slicer contracts. Leia rolled her eyes skyward. Why, she murmured. Do I suddenly have a bad feeling about this? Solid ending to chapter 10. Yeah. They, they got to cut down the bad feeling about this is because it's I think couple. we're at, yeah. we might be at three. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it, it felt right out of Empire, um, but a slight different version. The, the true sequel to uh, the, the trip to Bespin. So uh, I did read the first couple pages of the next chapter accidentally, and it's... Uh, um, or whatever the next chapter is coming after this. And yep. so it'll, it's interesting what happens next too. Uh, well, first is chapter 11 and the entire chapter takes place on Dagobah. This is yes. Luke lowering down into Dagobah with R2 and all of the territory is quite familiar, um, except it has worn greatly since he was last here. Um, it was odd, he thought, how it had only been on that first trip to Dagobah that the sensors had so totally failed on his approach. And, and then they kind of indicate that um, Yoda had probably repelled him in his like when when he really had like tough weather landing on Lego on Dagobah the first time. It's very likely like some kind of protective force that Yoda had put up, and that now it's not quite like that anymore. Though it's still a wasteland. Yeah, that's potential. Um, or else, or potentially Yoda crashed him. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, he, yeah, he lured him into a, a safe swamp, actually. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. A swamp that he knew he could lift the X-Wing out of. Um, and they don't find too much uh, at first. They do eventually get to Yoda's homestead, but it's all but gone. Just like like erosion and weather and fog have dilapidated it to basically nothing. And so that's actually pretty sad. And for the first... Luke, what's that? And Luke is sad. He's, he's, he's very reminiscent and uh, misses Yoda. He's very sad in this book in general, isn't he? There's really mm -hmm. no levity to Luke in this book. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I actually think it's really powerful that they paint him as so unfulfilled by the great victory of Endor. Mm -hmm. um, but they're unrelenting with that trait in Luke in this book. Yeah, he has a, a real sense of longing still mm -hmm. that he hasn't found what he's been looking for despite all of his efforts. Uh, and that he, yeah, he, he doesn't feel resolved um, to me as a reader. Mm -hmm. uh, and he still has a lot of room to grow, which is great. The, we don't get to see that in canon, really. We don't get to see the growth of Luke post Return of the Jedi. He just has a, he, we see that he's training Grogu and then shit goes wrong for him. And then we see him. They do a really good job of painting the picture of, of Luke and R2 being here alone on Dagobah, which is something we're familiar with. And this kind of harkens back to something we were talking about last week when you indicated that it's hard to put droid speak on the page. Uh, but I'll read for a second. Beside him, R2 twittered a question. I thought Yoda might have left some tapes or books behind, Luke explained. And so this is kind of neat. Like you can really hear how R2 would have said whoop, whoop, whoop. And then mm -hmm. Luke responded. And all you need to hear is what Luke said to understand the context of the question. Pausing, he swiveled his dome back. This is R2 toward Luke and made a series of sounds that could only have been a question. Okay, I'm coming, Luke sighed. That's perfect. That's really well done. Yeah, it's even, like, it was excellent in the audiobook. Yeah. Because you, it's, it's, it is the real conversation, and this chapter played really well um, because there was so much R2. I, I take back the, 
the comments of it being difficult because it isn't for Timothy Zahn. He, he proved a rate here and, and the lack of R2 up till this point, I guess, was, uh, was I guess, maybe the only reason I felt that way. And then we get the Cave of Wonders. Uh, Luke returns to exactly the place where he had a phantom duel with what appeared to be fa his father and ended up being himself in easily the most esoteric of original Star Wars scenes that surely as a kid I didn't understand at all and probably ached to fast forward through. And now I actually think how badass that this weird movie, actually not weird movie, that this mainstream sequel to a previously weird movie dared enough to do something as odd as this. Mm -hmm. um, I still kind of feel that way. And I was I was glad that they they paid such good homage to it with this new entrance of Luke in into this area and gave him a totally new experience, by the way, just as chilling, but really showed the uh, the breadth of what this cave can offer. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know. I, I haven't really figured out exactly the the immediate lesson it was trying to teach Luke, um, but it definitely showed him that there's uh, more to the story up to this point that he hasn't seen. Uh, that's clearly going to be circling back into into his life in some capacity. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know whether it's going to be revealed to him that there's more things that he that aren't as they seem mm -hmm. maybe that's going to be kind of what it's leading up to maybe he's going to be fooled a little bit by sabayoth i'm not sure um maybe mara jade pulls something very similar again this time in a different circumstance like so he has this thought in his mind of back if it had happened on the sail barge right but maybe the exact same thing does take place but later in this but luke hadn't experienced the event yet and so well he did anything to to compare it to so it's kind of like a blended forced vision we should explain because like obviously in empire strikes back the vision appears to be um watch out because the dark side's within you as well if you're not like careful like you might turn bad and in this particular vision luke finds himself like you said again on jabba's barge above the pit of carcoon as in return of the jedi wherein we know he and his friends saved the day it went well he caught the mm -hmm. lightsaber when R2 tossed it to him and they were able to break everyone away and it went all right. In his vision, it doesn't quite go that way because there is a woman there who is, I guess, force sensitive. Um, I'll read what's written here and it's all written in italics. He landed and had turned back to the sail barge, hand extended for the lightsaber R2 had just arced toward him. It never reached him. Even as he stood there waiting for it, the weapon changed direction, curving back toward the other end of the sail barge. Frantically, Luke reached out for it with the force, but to no avail. The lightsaber continued flight, came to rest in the hand of a slender woman standing alone at the top of the barge. And certainly we can assume this is Mara, who has some kind of connection to Luke that we haven't yet explored. We don't know that for sure. The chapter didn't confirm it to us. Didn't describe her other, other than saying she's a slender woman. Yeah, see, that was me putting adding a little extra context. I'm... From my understanding of what is to be coming, I would, I, I'm almost positive that's Mara. Oh, I, I am too, but I, they didn't, they didn't say it fully. And I'm like, yeah. at first I'm like, well, could it be Leia? Is he worried about Leia turning dark? And then there was a little bit more additional context that really put that away. But mm. it's, and also he would have recognized Leia, but like it, it it's going to be a slender woman. There aren't that many women in Star Wars. It's not Mon Mothma. And yeah. so it's probably Mara Jade. But I, I thought it was interesting because like this is starting to bridge the gap that's going to result in some kind of fascinating confrontation between these two people, which might be hostile. It might be romantic. I'm excited for it. Yeah, I mean, it's good. we know it's going to be probably both of those things. It's just a matter of when. Um, this, this is a story or this, this part is just the tip of the iceberg as well. So Luke having this vision um, of Mara on the sail barge, um, that will continue to be explored, that particular vision itself. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's one that's going to be kind of interesting, um, whether they um, reveal that in this book or not. Probably. I imagine they will. So then on his way out of the cave, he kind of shakes it off. He's like, well, that's what it was, I guess. He's talking back to R2. And then, though I'm not exactly sure I remember how, an interesting artifact turns up, a little cylinder, and he doesn't know what it is. 
small, somewhat flattened cylinder, a little longer than his hand, with five triangular, rust-encrusted keys on one side and some flowing alien script engraved on the other. Yeah, so I'm not exactly sure why R2 was picking up both, but R2 basically, he led him to the, the Cave of Evil, and then he was then Luke basically asked him, you still picking up a signal? And R2 was like, yeah, I got a tech signal as well, and buried somewhere or whatever it was that they find this cylinder. Uh, and of course, they want to get more info on it, and so... What do you know? Let's go see a guy who knows a thing or two about black market items. Let's go see Lando. So we're all going to uh, meet on Bespin. Yeah. and Or not Bespin, I don't think. Is it? Oh, I don't know. I didn't read ahead. Oh, sorry. I, I don't think he's on Bespin anymore. Um, but the thing I wasn't sure on, is this the same type of cylinder that Thrawn was after? Oh, maybe. So Thrawn wanted another little item. Um, remember that he was kind of saying, oh, I want to go to Wayland for a cloaking shield and another little thing. Uh, I think it might be the same item. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm curious to know what that item is because I don't know what the other MacGuffin is. I was um, just going to use the M word and I hope that we don't rely on it too heavily here. I think it will be more of a, I, my guess is if you ask me right now, it's some kind of key. Yeah, that would be my guess. Uh, if you hold it up I, at the horizon, you can see the the, oh, en geez. the entrance. To, the <laughs> to, be, to be honest, as, as dumb as that is, I actually think it could be similar, maybe, to the Wayfinders instead yeah. in Rise of Skywalker. So I think maybe there's a decent chance that these two keys need to be brought together, and are like only the two of them were made, similar to the Wayfinders, and like they unlock something together, and that uh, Sabaoth and Luke will do it together, similar to the way. Uh, Ezra and Darth Maul unlocked uh, Holocron uh, in Rebels. I could kind of see a similar sort of like, let's do this for the betterment of all force knowledge. Oh shit, what did I get myself into? <laughs> uh, so something like that I could foresee happening in Luke uh, not knowing what it is and Sabaoth knowing what it is and Thrawn knowing what it is and that info asymmetry not working in our hero's favor. Now I know this book in chapter one sort of established its own attitude about what forced ghosts are. Mm. But were you at all surprised that we didn't get to see Yoda here on Dagobah? There must have been a part of you that hoped we would. Oh, certainly hoped. Uh, and I I don't know if he, if he will, but I, I think because Obi-Wan goes away, I kind of expect Yoda's going to show up at some point. But maybe not. Uh, I really don't know much about... The only real thing I knew about forced ghosts in Legends was that Obi-Wan pieces out at the beginning of Heir to the Empire. That's yeah. all I knew. And so uh, we might get Anakin, we might get Yoda, we might not get either of them. I, I really have no idea. And so that's kind of a nice little thing of, I was hoping for it, but I'm not also uh, lost on hope that he still won't show up in this book even. If we got Anakin, you know, it would be ostensibly Sebastian Shaw Anakin. Uh, absolutely. Weird. That would be very weird. Weird. Yes. <laughs> you know, one thing that I'm absolutely, utterly blown away by is that Hayden Christensen, while not built the same way at all as Sebastian Shaw, uh, they do have a little bit of a similar, they have a similar facial look. Yeah. The way Hayden Christensen, uh, he's getting some defined age lines on his face. He still mm -hmm. looks great. But it's just like, it, it impresses me again. Like, okay, George, I get it kind of. That was... That was some seriously good casting. That that kind of works. Maybe that's intentional. And then also, like, sometimes movies just play tricks on you that, like, allow you to buy into yeah. the world. Or sometimes a director is just skilled enough that they know how to frame a face so that you... Like, I find this when I watch Goodfellas. Like, there's something about Ray Liotta that's like, oh, you really were proto-Leo. Like, there's something in your face that looks like Leo. And you never, mm. never otherwise think those two men look alike. But in Goodfellas, because that would have been Leo's part if it had been made later, it mm. looks like Leo. And so I wonder if a little bit of that is is happening because your your brain wants to connect the two. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure you're right. In the same way that um, it was an obvious Leo Jake Lloyd look. Right. I mean, those two, like that's very clearly would have been. Outrageous yes. casting and fans would have been like, "Oh, damn! You of course, see it, you big sure. Lloyd." <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, actually, this chapter is not without a classic Yoda lesson that he doesn't present himself, but um, Luke gets to remember it, and it's for me like the best line of the chunk, just because it's it's in Yoda's wisdom. Fear and anger, Yoda had often warned him, were the slaves of the dark. 
Vaguely, Luke wondered which side curiosity served. I just thought that was like just a classic Yoda wisdom. And then like also Luke kind of building upon it and showing his own wisdom. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think it goes to show more than anything, the difference between Luke uh, and Obi-Wan and Yoda, because Obi-Wan and Yoda didn't have faith in that one element of Luke. Mm -hmm. They were scared of his curiosity because Anakin's uh, independence was a problem, whereas Luke's curiosity is not independence. It's just curiosity. And his longing to look at the twin sons isn't to escape, but is just kind of who he is. Right, and surely um, it's not a slave of the dark side to be curious. But, no. But, but yes, there are dangers to it. Well, and, and that's, and I, I guess that's the thing. Yoda follows the, the slippery path of he is afraid of curiosity. Yeah, he He's showing fear. He's actually the one who's on the wrong path there. Whereas Luke doesn't show fear with his curiosity, and so there's nothing wrong with it. Right, right, I agree. Well, that's pretty much it for these three chapters. It did kind of like get better as it went. And certainly the Dagobah oh, yeah. stuff was really exciting. Very, very challenging, though. I'm finding it for just following along as to which chapter, which event occurs. And well, there's so much bouncing back and forth. I mean, it's easy to follow the the narrative. It's just not easy to uh, organize how it uh, how it unfolded. Well, it's kind of neat that you and I are consuming this book through different mediums. You're mostly listening and then you're also consuming the comic book uh, short version of it and I'm like literally reading the book on a piece of paper and I have a pen and I'm underlining stuff on basically every page and so yeah, yeah this is just I've always wanted to do a, a book club podcast and I I never really worked out exactly how I would do it if it would just be its own show or if Slaney and I would do one but like it's actually working really great here and it's nice to have something new to talk about with you because though I like doing top six lists you know, sometimes you start to wonder if you've run out of new ways to say Han Solo is cool. And here we are also saying Han Solo is cool, but through an entirely new lens. And so I find it's kind of re reinvigorating me. Oh, absolutely. I'm really glad to hear that, too, because I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And I I very quickly jump to the next section uh, of readings as soon as these podcasts end. Um, <laughs> maybe not tonight, as I usually do, but uh, my might be my Friday evening. I think we can do four chapters before the next pod, because that's an even 50 pages, if that's cool with you. Perfect. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, anything in the Star Wars news we ought to head on? Not tons. Uh, in general, the fan uh, comments on Star Wars Outlaws look pretty damn good, which is nice to see. Uh, fans... Uh, can sometimes be nasty about some things and there's a little bit of it but it's mostly really positive that game looks fantastic it so does I'm, I'm pretty excited about that um the filming for the ray movie they're aiming for apparently april uh 26 so that, right yeah sorry you know the filming to start in april 2024 oh okay i see it comes so out I, in 26 I, I think so. Or maybe 2020, no, 2025, I think. There's one in 2025 and two yeah. in 2026. Oh, yeesh. Okay, that's going to be good. Yeah. yeah, weird though. I'm not quite sure. I think that's the way it breaks down. They've changed it so many friggin' times. Yeah. It's hard to remember. Um, I think that might be one of the only things uh, that's in the news. Yeah, Skeleton Crew uh, still seems to be all quiet on the Western Front there, so that's kind of confusing. Uh, I have no idea when it's going to be coming out. Uh, and or Season 2... Um, that's, yeah, I mean, nothing really new developing, just um, excitement around Soka. Kind of nice seeing Diego Luna and the uh, variety actors on actors. And he's done it. He did another round table with like Jeremy Strong and uh, Bella Ramsey. Like there's some really good uh, pre-Emmy content so far featuring some Star Wars family members. And Pedro's been around a little bit, mostly talking about Last of Us. But he has, when we talked about this before, he has been pretty open at this point that he wasn't on set at all season season three of Mando and at yeah. least he's honest about it, I guess. Yeah. I mean, by the sounds of it, he didn't enjoy the job. He, yeah. he doesn't like, he doesn't like being in the suit uh, and it probably impacts his acting. And then that probably makes him like it even less. I guess. So, but, but I like, is the suit comfortable is like kind of the cliche that like a lot of movie stars in the making have to endure for a few years like is the suit comfortable though like they get asked that on every press junket and the answer is always no but the longer answer is no but 
I, you're going to remember me forever. <laughs> so maybe the it, difference is that his helmet is always on. And so like it, it, it's he's allowed to be that way. But I don't know. Yeah, I think there's a, a, maybe a little bit that he's 47. Yeah, and good point. He's he's never going to be hotter because he's the biggest name in the in like entertainment. But he's uh, middle aged already. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's yeah. like he's he's at the peak. And so he doesn't need at this point to do something that's uncomfortable and not the dream job for him because this is his window of time to do the dream roles. Yeah. And clearly it seems like Joel was that for him. Yeah. Uh, and I think he still really enjoyed. It seems like he really enjoys being the the voiceover for, for Din. Uh, it seems like that seems to be a good compromise for him. And it means that Latif Crowder and Brendan Wade are getting paid a lot more because yep. they're in the credits at a higher point. And so, um, and uh, Katie Sackoff, uh, he spoke extremely highly of her. Uh, and so she's going to very likely continue to be probably a co-lead there. And so I, I think that's all in, in in a good position, especially now that it's out in the open and it's not considered this kind of like weird topic that people are chatting around and not necessarily about. Right, exactly. Okay, well, is that it? Uh, the only other kind of funny thing was that I, uh, I heard, do you know the actor Jensen Ackles? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah and so, the uh what supernatural guy right yeah and someone asked him about uh batman for brave and the bold and i actually think he'd be a perfect casting for it yeah uh, and and he joked that uh well i mean yes of course I, i'd like to do it um but i mean i'll probably audition and then pedro will get it like joel that's... yeah he was up for joel <laughs> i know and, and i was thinking like if he, he was he would have been a great joel and he also would have been a really good din he has such a good voice yeah and he could have really pulled off the gruff and tough, but it's a little baby. Yeah. <laughs> and like kind of that really good. And so he's it, funny he's too. Funny. That like, that was the dynamic of Supernatural all along. Yeah. He, he's funny. He's very likable. And so I hope he continues to rise. He was great in the boys. And so I hope he continues to rise in popularity maybe and gets Bruce Wayne and then maybe ends up in Star Wars one day just in terms of seems like a likable guy. And I, I, I got a good kick out of the fact that Pedro has taken everybody's job. You know, they also <laughs> talked about McConaughey in that part, the Joel part. Yeah. Yeah. I'd heard about that. Uh, apparently, um, it was just kind of floated around there. I don't know if it necessarily went anywhere, but he he makes sense. I get it. Yeah. Following especially the true detective uh, role. It's. He actually, he probably would have been really great. Like, I wouldn't change that, but like, he probably would have been really great because he can be yeah. really serious and he's a cowboy and yeah, good actor. Yeah, he was probably just maybe a little too Matthew McConaughey. So the chapters we just discussed, A Bear to the Empire, are 9, 10, 11. Uh, if you have any thoughts on those or the book in general, any questions because you're not reading it, that's valid also. Uh, please feel free to email recorder66podcast at gmail.com or you can tweet at recorder66. Be sure to like and subscribe on your preferred podcast app. And if you're joining us on YouTube, uh, do the same there, I guess. We're going to read uh, for next week's pod, unless plans change, uh, chapters 12, 13, 14, 15. And we'll be back to discover that, to discuss that very, very soon. But until we are together again, may the force be with you.